The Institute of Art and Ideas is excited to announce Closer to Truth as an official partner for our upcoming How the Light Gets In Festival at Hey on Why, happening this year, May 24th to 27th. Closer to Truth examines humanity's deepest questions with the world's greatest thinkers, from Nobel laureates and renowned scientists to theologians and best-selling authors. For 20 years, Closer to Truth has explored the deep questions of cosmos, consciousness, and meaning. This year, host Robert Lawrence Kuhn journeys to new depths with their philosophy of biology season, exploring topics like evolution, race, alien intelligences, sex and gender, and much more. Get early access to full episodes from this brand new season by registering for a free membership at their website, closertotruth.com. Discover the fundamental issues of existence, engage new and diverse ways of thinking, and seek out your own answers with Closer to Truth. Hello. Hello. And welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, bringing you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. My name's Charlie Barnett, and I'm a senior producer here at the IAI. And I'm Ricky, production lead here at the IAI. Today we've got The Seduction of Thought, featuring best-selling author Miranda Keeling, psychologist Steve Taylor, and prison philosopher Andy West. This took place in the 2022 How the Light Gets In Festival in London, the philosophy festival produced by the team here at the IAI. So, Ricky, tell us a bit more about the debate. Well, this debate explored whether words, thought and kind of logic were giving us insights into reality or maybe standing in the way of reality. A lot of our experience is kind of mediated by our ideas about things, our concepts, but maybe this is actually standing in the way. The way we feel about things, how our body feels in the presence of certain things, that can actually give us way more insight than just thinking alone. So is the idea that our knowledge is not a holistic understanding of the world and the way in which we represent that knowledge through language is a very limited view. I think not only that, I think Steve Taylor even argues that knowledge might actually stand in the way even of us having a true picture of reality. That's one view, but I mean, obviously thinking, intellectual thought, that's obviously had a huge impact on our culture and allows us to do so many different things. So it feels dangerous to kind of get rid of thought altogether. So if you enjoy today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit iai.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers. Let's now hand over to the host of this debate, Jana Teller. From the birth of reason to Descartes, I think therefore I am. Western culture has placed thought at the centre of what it is to be human. In our everyday lives, the same is true. We spend much of our time planning the future, reflecting on the past, puzzling about what to do, and talking about it with others. But might this be a mistake? To think too much is a disease, argued Dostoevsky. While existentialists made the case that thought obscures the essence of what it is to be a human being. Should culture, as Nietzsche proposes, free itself from the seduction of words and thought? Should we focus on experience, action, and being, turn off our screens, explore the world, and live a bit more? Or is this romantic nonsense and thought not only makes us unique, but allows us to make sense of the world and alone offers the means to overcome the profound challenges we face? So on to our speakers. On my very left here, I have Miranda Keeling, is a writer, actor, filmmaker, and winner of the BBC's Norman Beaton Radio Drama Award. She's the author of The Year I Stopped to Notice. And then we have Steve Taylor, 
author of several best-selling books in the fields of psychology and spirituality, and is a senior lecturer in psychology. And to my right, we have Andy Vest, who has taught philosophy in prison since 2015, and recently wrote his first book, The Life Inside, which explores the conversations he had with those prisoners and his own family connection to prison. Please give a warm welcome to the panel. We start off, um, we have a lot of things to cover today, so we go straight into the pitch where each of the speakers will give a three-minute introduction of their thoughts on the issue and the main question, which is, should culture free itself from the seduction of words and thought? And I will let Steve Taylor start, and I'm tough on time, Steve, so... Okay, I'll bear that in mind. Uh, good morning, everybody. Um, I'm on the side of Dostoevsky and Nietzsche, which sounds a bit pretentious, but... But um, yeah, I, 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 I disagree with Descartes. Um, again, that's something I, think I, I thought I'd never say. But I think the kind of self which is associated with thinking is a kind of superficial, even illusory type of self. I think our real authentic self, or more authentic self, more essential self, emerges when we stop thinking, in moments when our mind is quiet and empty. But it's important to bear in mind, I think, you know, you can broadly speak and you can differentiate between two different types of thinking. There is what you could call rational, conscious thought, uh, which, which you use to evaluate things, to critically analyze things. We use it to plan, to decide, to organize, and so forth. And, and that's obviously a great tool. It's, a great, you know, it's one of the great advantages of being human, that we can use this, this conscious thought. But unfortunately, I don't think much of our thought is actually of that type. I think probably 95% of thought, well, maybe I'm talking about my own mind here, this is obviously the one I know best. 95% of our thinking it tends to be kind of random, associational, involuntary chatter. It's the kind of the stream of consciousness, you could call it. It's, it tends to focus on the future, the past, uh, daydreams about alternate realities. And it, it stops us being present, and it, it creates a kind of filter that stands between us and reality, like a fog of abstraction which stops us really experiencing the world around us. It can stop us really communicating with one another because there's so much sort of random chatter in our minds that we don't really communicate fully or don't really, we're not really present to other people. So it would be great if we could increase the amount of rational conscious thought we have and decrease the amount of chatter that we have. Also, this chatter tends to gravitate towards negative things, tends to gravitate to, towards worries, problems, resentments. It tends to inflate them, so it, it can cause quite a lot of discord in our lives. And I think most of the, the really happy moments, in our, the happiest moments in our lives arise when we stop thinking. In psychology, there's a concept called flow that you've probably heard of, which is when our minds are intensely absorbed in an activity and a stimulating activity. And our minds become very quiet. There's a sense of energetic fullness within us, a sense of energy, a sense of well-being. And also meditation. You know, meditation the, the very aim of many types of meditation is to empty the mind, to stop thinking. And when we do that, we feel this marvelous kind of rich energy inside of this marvelous fullness of being. So it would be great if, um, if thinking could be a tool that we sort of pick up when we need it. And when we don't need it, we can put it down again and enjoy a kind of, uh, a, a, a kind of a mental emptiness, a mental quietness, which would give us a more authentic and essential sense of identity. Okay, thank you very much, Steve. And then Miranda Keeling. So as an actor, I found myself kind of writing a script. Um, but it's interesting what you just said about flow, because that's what I'm going to start with. And I'd, I'd like to kind of second a lot of what you said. So as an artist, I know really well the feeling of being in flow. 
you know, when that happens, all thoughts kind of fall away and it's an indescribable feeling that it happens, especially when I'm creating something, so a story or some writing or a recording. And I've experienced this feeling of being in flow, not just when I'm creating something, so, so in terms of culture, but also when I'm swimming or, you know, doing yoga or listening to music. And on stage, I've felt the flow of energy from an audience and I've thrown it back at them all before we've had a moment to even form a thought. And it's a wonderful experience. And some people call this flow God and some people call it something else and some people have no idea what it is, right? But when I meditate, as you mentioned, meditation, I reach a similar place where I'm resting with the contents of my mind. And I notice my thoughts, but importantly, I'm not pulled along by them. I can sense the space kind of underneath my thoughts, the emptiness, and I can rest there. And it can feel blissful. So there is an enormous amount of benefit in being without thought, especially while creating art, which is culture. However, there is still a place for thought. Um, I used to work in improvised theatre. I was in a company of four actors and we used to have to go on, night every, um, on stage every night and improvise two plays with an interval in between, an hour long each. Um, and before each show, the audience would vote on who we were and where we were. So they might say, you're three bridesmaids and a bride in a kitchen. And then the director would come back and tell us and we'd look through our costumes and put something relevant on and come out and improvise this play. So the reason I tell you about this is that improvised theatre is an extreme form of, of present culture. What happens every night is brand new. It's happening right now and it can never be repeated. But there were rules. And some of you might be familiar with the rules of improvisation, you know, accept what's offered, that kind of thing. And those rules have been considered and devised over a long time and they work. My background before acting was in circus and magic and escapology, and they all require, you know, dexterity and quick, quick thinking, quick reactions. And they also require hours of practice and thought. The magician Tommy Cooper, I don't know if you know Tommy Cooper, but he's, he had this signature kind of comedy magic act. Um, and he put huge amounts of thought into producing what looked like a chaotic off the cuff character. So there is a freedom away from the seduction of thought. And when you dip your paintbrush into paint and you splash it against the canvas, you know, that's a, that's a relinquishing of control. And artistically, it's really valuable. Um, but thought enables us to communicate and to create collectively and to learn from our mistakes and successes and to plan our next piece of work. Thought is often what enables those producing culture to enjoy the thoughtlessness of being in flow. Thank you. And Andy? So should culture avoid the seduction of words and thought? Um, I, I think we should make words and thought more seductive uh, than they are at the moment. Um, there's, a, there's an experience I had uh, earlier this year in February, um, which has really stuck with me. I was in a woman's prison uh, where I'd been teaching for a while and I had a relatively new class and um, I was filling up my whiteboard with the uh, theory of moral consequentialism, this idea that uh, an action is good or bad depending on the outcomes that it has rather than depending on a, 
a religious framework or whether, whether because of some system of reason and ideas. I was explaining this theory of consequentialism. And, and one of the women in the class just had this huge grin on her face. And I was kind of a, I was kind of aware of it. I was a bit distracted by it, but I was kind of carried on anyway in earnest, kind of explaining this theory, and um, and then she just started laughing, and I said, "What's up?" Her name was Ari, um, and I, I said, "What's up?" And she said, "So people actually sit down and write out all this kind of stuff about what makes something." good or bad and I'm like yeah that's that's kind of what philosophers do that's that's the study of philosophy that's the practice of philosophy and she just laughed again and said but they, so, so you're telling me they actually do that like as a thing and she said isn't it just like childhood though that kind of makes you who you are and like where you're born and then that's kind of just how you turn out to be and I found it, I, f I found it really uh, moving, actually, uh, that kind of um, almost like naked uh, confession of like fatalism and determinism. And obviously that had been um, perhaps part of her life, the fact that she'd ended up in prison. Um, it also kind of made sense uh, given the kind of uh, layer of society she was in. Uh, prisons are not a world that are touched by good sense most of the time. Uh, I think we all know, uh, most of society know, most politicians know, most policymakers know what would make that world better, what would improve it. They know which ideas work, they know which ideas don't work, but the actual public will or political courage to actually make those improvements just don't happen. Uh, so it's not a surprise that in that setting, big ideas become quite literally laughable. <laughs> um, but, you know, uh, I sort of carried on in earnest with Ari and we had a great uh, three months together and uh, I, I think she really uh, enjoyed the class. I, I suppose my feeling with a student like that is it doesn't, it doesn't have to be this way. Uh, and, you know, there is, there is a history in the working class of like um, of education and ideas and thought and intellectual enrichment, uh, what got called the the mutual improvement societies that you'd have, where uh, mill workers or factory workers uh, would uh, gather together and pool resources to build libraries and uh, teach each other bits they'd learned from politics, literature, art, ethics, um, you know, uh, what's, what was called bettering yourself. I think those movements were, were the things that, that gave rise to the labor movement, that, that they were part of a sort of organized working class. They didn't come out of philanthropy, that, that, that those libraries weren't uh, uh, given from above, uh, um, they weren't state funded. Um, and, and so, uh, what I want is more of that. That, that, that those kind of movements couldn't really exist today in the age of the zero hours contract and in the age of the Uber driver and in the age where certain companies make it illegal for you to join unions. But I suppose wh when I think of this question of culture, should culture avoid the seduction of thought? You know, are we talk? what do we mean by culture? Are we talking capital C culture or are we talking society in general, and, and I think in society in general, 
I'd love to see more thought because that's what makes another existence possible. That's what makes, if, if, if you can think, if you can imagine another possible existence for yourself, then that's, that's what can free you. One of the things that can free you from the kind of fatalism that Ari had. Interesting. Thank you, uh, Andy. We'll hold that thought. We'll get back to, I think, that with a thought can kind of help us change our lives uh, later. We'll now get into our first theme. And you can also get back to what you've been saying in your statements, if that fits in here. Is thought a distraction from or a description of reality? And I want to start with Miranda on that. Um, so to sum up my answer, I would say that it is a description. I have thoughts about whether it's distracting thought in itself, but I think that every thought that we have is a description of our understanding of reality in that moment. It's not necessarily a thought that keeps us present, like I am cold or whatever. It might be I'm worried about this thing that I'm doing next week, or it might be a thought that's not based in actual reality at all because we're feeling confused or, I don't know, drunk or whatever. But it's always a description of our understanding of reality. But aren't there thoughts that, like, come out of, yeah, um, you can say nowhere in a sense what the flow you were talking about before when you were in that moment? Yeah. There's still thought. Yes. I mean, otherwise you couldn't communicate. Yes. So those thoughts become part of your flow. Are they then still describing? And are they describing from which point of view are they describing? So when I talk about being in flow, I don't feel like I have any thought at all. I feel like in that moment, it's like there's a force flowing through me from somewhere into something. So there is no thought there. But when I am having a thought, whatever that thought is, it's a way of describing my lived reality either in the past, now, or in the future. Right, so you also thought as a description. <laughs> I think I want to have Steve come in on that. Um, I think it can be both. I think a lot of the time it can be a distraction from reality. You know, daydreams, for example, are not reality, and they can, they can stand in the way of reality. They can prevent you becoming aware of the reality that you're in in this moment. I think well, one of the great sort of themes of spiritual traditions, which is one of my interests, is that they, they try to get beyond thought and they try to get to a kind of perception or experience which is non-conceptual, non-lingual. That that's one of the great ideas of Zen Buddhism, for example. It's about, you know, it's in a way, it's a way of kind of recapturing children's perception. Children, young children live in a kind of pre-lingual, pre-conceptual world. And that's why the world is so incredibly exhilaratingly real to them. You know, we, we all know, if anybody's got young children, you all know that they have this amazingly vivid, intense perception. Everything is fascinating, you know, even the most mundane things, crisp packets, you know, dog poo on the, on the path. Anything they find is fascinating. But we lose that as we become older because we, we start to develop a kind of con conceptual mind. We start to think in terms of concepts. And the concepts stand in the way of reality. If you think of the concept of a tree or the word tree, you know, it doesn't capture the reality of these strange, fantastical, living organisms that we see in our gardens and our streets. It doesn't capture it at all. And if you reduce it to the word tree, you miss so much of it. You know, so if you forget the concept, forget the word, and you if you're confronted with the reality of a tree or anything, it's so much more, it's so much more real. But w would you claim then that in a wordless world there would be no thinking? Or don't, wouldn't we just, you know, think without that kind of concept? Uh, well, lots of kind of um, 
non-linguistic cultures in the world who don't have a written language yeah. and some indigenous groups and they obviously still have thought. Yeah. That's uh, what I mean. So, mm -hmm. so they, and even if they might not use a word like tree for a tree, still the recognition of the existence of that uh, plant group as a tree is, is there. So, yeah. so there is somehow must be a communication around it. It'll still enter thought at some level. Yeah, I agree. I agree. But you can still, even if you have a language, you can still recognize something beyond language. You can still sort of enter a state of consciousness in which you, you know, see the reality of things beyond language. Yeah. You know, which is like one of the aims of meditation is to kind of deconstruct those concepts and those psychological processes which create concepts and language. So, so you think that when words are used to describe, and thereby you can say way thought are used to describe the world, it actually takes us away from being in the world. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, right. I, that's what I think. Okay, yeah. good. So I want to move on to, to Andy on this, because I imagine you have a different perspective on that thing, you know, when you were talking about how thought is necessary to make any changes in the world. And your prison world must, or work must also have confront you with people who need daydreaming even to get through their existence. But what is your take on um, whether thought is a distraction or description from reality? Well, I, I guess my first thought on that um, is uh, how would we know? Uh, I don't think any of us have been able to look at reality independently of ourselves. Um, what do we know what reality is like and whether our thoughts and our mind are distorting it or not we're just we're just lumbered in this skull and we have to look at everything through these eyes and uh in you know take everything in through this brain so um in terms of you know i i i can see how um flow states meditation um that kind of thing i can see how it can give you a heightened uh, sense of perception of beauty of joy of of many life affirming things but i i don't know if that's uh reality as such i don't know if that's uh the way that things are in themselves i don't know if that's the the, the sort of numinous as 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 kant called it yeah do you think that we get closer or further away to the understanding of reality when when we put words and concepts on them you know like what steve was saying that takes us away from reality but isn't there also a way one could imagine the opposite is actually that the more we're able to discern and by putting words and concepts on each little part of reality yes. the more we see and understand i sp i suppose just to put my sort of society hat back on which I kind of opened with um, I suppose there's something potentially troubling about the idea of switching off thought uh, um, you know part of the reason I teach philosophy in prisons is uh, but part of what has been uh, really re rewarding about it is uh, seeing people just find more descriptions find more language, uh, find more ways to, to reveal what their own life and their own circumstance is like to them and, and how it could be in the future. Uh, so, you know, uh, while there's definitely a place to, uh, there's definitely a, a time and place to uh, uh, let go of neurotic thinking, uh, obsessive thinking, uh, an overly analytical mode in, in life, I, I think when you sort of look at that from a society point of view, what I want is more thought. I, I, I don't think that's a distraction. I think that's clarifying. I think that's 
I think ideas can be it can be incredibly um, you know illuminating right yeah so thoughts and conceptualization actually expands the personal understanding of reality yes and yeah yeah um, and can I just get quickly in on that from yeah the other side here it's so interesting uh, so meditation is an interesting subject here because meditate in terms of what you know Andy was talking about um, and I think Steve you might agree that when you meditate you're not the thoughts that come up aren't all positive. It isn't all about resting in the joy and the kind of loveliness because a lot of what comes up in meditation makes you cry or, 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 or deal with the really difficult things because you've given them space. Often we cover them with a lot of stuff. So I do think that, um, especially through having meditated for a long time, that thoughts can be a distraction. They can be a distraction that is positive. It could be negative. It could be neutral. But I still think that that if you come back to the question, what are those thoughts? Are they a distraction or a description? They're a description. So they distract you, yes, but they distract you with a description of your reality. And coming back quickly to dreams, yeah, I might be dreaming, I might be having thoughts while I'm asleep about swimming through a river dressed as a dolphin. And that's, a, that's not real, but it's a description of my reality in the dream. So I think it's always kind of, yeah. I think I come back to the same. Right. same I just want to get Steve in this, but I, I also want to if we start meditating all the time, wouldn't that take us away from reality rather than bring us closer to it? <laughs> I don't think so. I think the opposite. You know, anybody yeah. who's meditated, one, one thing I often get after a, me a good meditation is a lot of meditations are not very good. You know, again, speaking personally. Same. Because, <laughs> yeah, sometimes it's because of thought. You get too many thoughts in your mind, you just can't focus on your breathing or, or whatever. But even that's kind of that's interesting in itself because you, you do start to observe your thinking and you, uh, you get a sense of distance between yourself and your thoughts. But um, what, yeah, what, what I meant to say was that after a good meditation, my perceptions become, become so much richer. I notice things. I notice a pattern on the cup. I think, wow, was that pattern really there all these years on this cup? The patterns on a shirt. Wow, look at that pattern on the shirt. My perception becomes so intense, a bit like children's perception again. So if we could cultivate that kind of perception on an ongoing basis, we would, we would, be, you know, we would live much closer to reality. The world would become much more real to us. And we'd also have better relationships with each other because a lot of discord in relationships comes from not being present, you know, or comes from expectations which are future-based or resentments which are past-based from the past. But if you're fully present to somebody without future or the past and without distracting thoughts, then there's a, there's a new harmony in relationships. You know, you, there's a sense of presence and sense of respect. Yeah. But then you're getting a lot to that. The problem is the distracting thought. It's not thought as such. Yeah, I agree. You know, in its place, I think thought is fantastic. It's one of the greatest human uh, tools and attributes. But it's just this kind of distracting associational chatter, which seems to be an affliction which we, we human beings have to bear. Yeah. Do you want to just come in on, on some of this before we move to the next theme? Or well, I, I, well, I agree with, with Steve in that um, I don't want to make it a false antithesis, you know, between thinking and not thinking that you're sort of either on either with them or with us, obviously, that there's there's benefits in 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 both. And um, yeah. OK, let's move to the next theme. Um, are modern humans too lost in the distraction of everyday thoughts? Should we turn off our screens? and live a bit more um, and 
I mean, these days everyone seems to be addicted to our phone. I'm very happy to see that most people are looking up here to the stage, not looking on their phones. Um, <laughs> but half of our lives are spent staring at screens, actually. And are modern humans too lost in that distraction, distraction of everyday thoughts? Uh, should we turn off our screens? And I guess that is meant in a broader sense and, and live a bit more. Andy, what is your take on that? <laughs> um, uh, so, so one of the reasons I, l it, another reason I quite like my working day in prison is that you cannot take a mobile phone or any kind of device into prison. So I have to put it in a locker before I go in. And, uh, you know, for the first five minutes of the day, I'm often like bereft, you know, every time I check my pocket and <laughs> where, where are my alerts? Um, and there's kind of withdrawal. Um, but you, you, you kind of really enjoy the day, like you get your attention span back because it's not being like pillaged by like pings and emails. Uh, but one of the, one of the uh, uneasy uh, ironies of, of that is that um, smartphones in prison are illegal and therefore at a, sell at a very, very high price. So, um, you know, a smartphone that you could buy for 250 pounds on eBay for, you could sell for 2,000 pounds in prison. Um, and often people secrete smartphones in their anuses. Um, and so I'm sort of walking up the stairs in Pentonville, enjoying the absence of weight in my pocket. And I know that maybe the man who's crossing the stairs with me has a phone in his ass. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, so it's one of the sort of ironies. It doesn't ring. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so yeah, it's one of those ironies in that I'm like, oh, it's so nice to be free from my phone and all that contact and nobody can get to me. But obviously, you know, there's, there's people in there who are uh, disconnected in the worst possible way and um, will take huge risks and do crazy things. And, you know, financial risks, legal risks, physiological risks uh, just to get a phone um, so uh, and, and in like a philosophical co uh, context do you think that that's because the phone represent a connection to reality for them you know existential reality or is it more practical it's a way to make deals and to get contact with their family or, or is it kind of both yeah I think I think both yeah um, I mean occasionally you just you, you you know, I'm, I'm working uh, in Brixton at the moment, HMP Brixton, with a group of lifers, and uh, you know, they've been in. Some of them have been in 16, 17 years already, and they're just sort of past. They're just past it with smartphones. It's just, you know, maybe they would have done that 10 years ago or whatever, but it's just not something they're interested in. And I think part of part of the reason that is is their survival strategy is a lot about. Uh, what what gets called on the landing, keeping your head in jail, keep your head in jail, uh, and then you can survive this. Whereas if, if your head's outside, uh, if, if you're sort of entangled in outside life too much, then inside life is not so survivable. So, um, yeah. Interesting. I think, Steve, we'll get you in here. Um, we, we talk about your phones and screens, but did that kind of loss of sense of reality not start much earlier than 20 years ago. I mean, what do we talk about with television, with books, mm, with, yeah. you know, that thing mm. of leaving yourself in another thought? Um, I think so. Yeah, I mean, I, I can remember the pre-internet days on, on trains. You go on a train and everyone was either reading a book or staring out the window or talking. And now everyone's looking at a screen. 
So the, you know, you seem to have lost something. Of, you know, the, even that sense of connection to the countryside that you, know, you stare out the train window and you see lovely countryside rolling by, but people have lost that. I also remember as a child, you know, walking down the street. Um, if you walk down a terrace house, a, a street of terrace houses near where I live, everybody would be sitting in the front room watching TV, sort of staring in a trance-like state, a picture box in the corner of the room, corner of the room. I thought, wait, what's going on here? Why do they need to do that? But I think a lot of human beings do find it very difficult to be present. We instinctively search for you know, an object to focus our attention on to get us away from the state of being present. And why is that? Is that our lives are somehow so horrid? You know, I, even I, in I think it, a lot of it's acclimatization. A lot of people are just not used to spending time inside their own minds or beings. That they're so used to focusing their attention outside that they almost never focus their attention inwardly. And, and if they do focus their attention immediately, there's a sense of restlessness, that, that kind of restless associational thought chatter is on our mind. So it, it feels a bit uneasy. So it's like, it's like a house. Imagine a house where there's a lot of discord, where the family are always arguing. So the, the child wants to spend most of the time outside the house. It's a bit like that with our own minds, because there's a sense of discord. We want to spend our time outside our minds. So we almost get, it's almost like an addiction that we need to get outside of our minds. Exactly, and it becomes habitual. You know, once a, once a habit creates itself, it's very difficult to... I mean, I get it. Sometimes I get up in the morning, go downstairs, and immediately there's an urge to fix my attention somewhere, like a newspaper, check my email, rather than just being present and enjoying the, the situation, enjoying my breakfast. So it's a habit, you know. So, so you think it's a habit. It's not necessarily inherent in the human being that we seek that you know, distraction outside us. It's somehow that something we are brought up to have with well, in our both. culture. I think yeah. it's an instinctive reaction to our own sort of discord, to a sense of unease within ourselves, but it becomes habitual and it's encouraged by our culture as well. Yeah. Okay, so I want to move on to Miranda. Um, do you think also that um, we are distracted too much, of course, through all the screens, but is that where, where is reality then? That's an interesting question. I, I think we are distracted too much by screens. I completely agree with you, Andy, that when I don't have my phone on me, it's initially weird and I feel jumpy and then I just go, oh, thank goodness. Um, and reality is both out here and in this, the entire world copied again in our phones. So we're stuck somewhere in the middle, I think. Um, and you were talking about, although it's nice to be without your phone, actually it's for some people in the prisons you go into, it's incredibly serious whether or not they have a phone. And you only have to think about, you know, Molly Russell in this Instagram case to be reminded that these, these, these devices are really, they can be used for good, they can be used for being in flow, doing a yoga class, blah, 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 right? But the algorithms are designed to pull us somewhere else and they're very competent at doing that. So. We're fighting, because I was thinking about the question, are modern humans too lost in the distraction of everyday thoughts? Because, you know, Buddha was teaching about distracting thoughts 2,500 years ago. So it's not a modern situation. Um, but I think that the devices that we have and the software and the, the algorithms and the things that we're up against it, with these screens, it is different, it is modern, and it is both potentially joyous and potentially incredibly damaging. Yeah, it seems somehow that the modern technology has like, made all what was already there distracting from ourselves exponentially much worse. And it's like every year going worse and they know all our weaknesses to pray into this. But when we still see somebody who is incarcerated, because I think it's an actually really interesting example then of what it is to be a human being. If you sit in a cell 
and particularly if you then imagine somebody in isolation or alone in a cell, that phone is the only communication with the outside world. But it also then, if it were a smartphone, becomes the impression of what the world is, because how we perceive the world depends on yeah, what we take in. And I, I don't know how you see that, if that changes then people's perception of reality in prisons, depending on whether they have a smartphone or not. I mean, you must have you know, talked to prisoners, both who have one and who don't have one. How is their perception and sense of um, their own being and reality? Um, well, I, th I think um, if they do have one, they, sh they certainly shouldn't tell me about it because I would have to report <laughs> uh, it. So you wouldn't. So officially, you don't know. Officially, I don't no. know about it. Um, and in terms of talking, sort of their experience and um, and their reality, I, I I suppose I have to be, you know, honest about the fact that I go home at five o'clock. I've never I've never been behind the door. I've never been incarcerated myself. I, my my brother and my dad and my uncle were, and I have a lot of family who were, but I've never actually had that experience myself. But um, I, I, I think the separation from reality for, for prisoners comes um, via the sensation of time that uh, a, a lot of prisoners say um, it's when you get out, even if, you, even if you've been watching the telly and reading the newspapers and you've been keeping up to date with society or whatever, it's just the tempo of existence. It just hurtles right past you in a way that, you know, if, you're, if you've, you've just had this life of docility and waiting and boredom in prison for years and years and years, you're just, you, you've just slowed so much without realizing yeah. that. I mean, in a way, it links up with the meditation uh, that, I mean, the few people who seem to have managed to get something positive out of prison, you know, I'm not a believer in prison at all, but the very few that we know publicly, like figures like a Mandela or a Malcolm X or so, they somehow manage, I guess, to use that forced meditative, slow way of living into finding um, another path as, as the only way to survive. Would you, would you think that? Well, Malcolm X is an interesting case for, for our debate because he uh, gave himself to the seduction of thought and words. He copied out the entire dictionary uh, in his prison cell. Uh, he became a fierce autodidact. He, he read and read and read. Um, and it was that, you know, he read world history, he read black history, he read about politics, economics, and it was it was that that allowed him a view on where he was, how he got there, who he was, and who he could be. I've also, um, sorry, can you just come in there? I've done, as I was saying before, I've done quite a lot of research on transformational experience in prisoners. I've done a lot of research on transformational experiences in the midst of psychological turmoil and difficult situations. and. And I, I found that quite a few prisoners who I interviewed, they, they mentioned this sort of letting go, that they had to let go of their identity, because everything which constitutes your identity is outside the prison walls. Or, so you have to sort of let go of who you thought you were, which is very painful for a lot of people. But for some people, it seems to bring out a more essential identity. It, they, they find something deeper within themselves. I think they, that's a kind of anal an analogy for what happens to anybody when they enter their own being, you know, when we stop distracting ourselves and really learn to occupy our own mental space and to explore our own mental space, we find something, you know, deeper and more authentic. Yeah, it's a bit like the 
that enforced meditative state. I mean, like yeah. some people managed to get something good out of that COVID isolation. I was just going to say, it's, yeah. not, it's not comparable mm. exactly, but I was wondering if it's a bit like what you're talking about when we were sort of imprisoned. It's, it's not the same, but, you know, by the virus and by the rules. Yeah. And time did change. My relationship to time and how I felt about it really did change. Yeah, that thing that there are not that many outside demands, yeah. because part of all that distraction is not only coming from our thoughts, but does come from what the outside world from us. Yeah. I, um, how do you look at that, Steve? I, I agree. I, I get it. It goes back to sort of the illusory or kind of delusory quality of thought that you can it can create a kind of false image of who you are based on other people's impressions or based on your own thoughts. So you thought you can develop a whole thought created identity, which is not your real self. And it's when you're in a situation like prison or when you spend a lot of time alone, a kind of enforced um, solitude, then then you find out what is beneath thoughts. You find a, a more essential identity. So you know it, it, that's one of the reasons why traumatic situations I've found in my research, they, they can be very beneficial because they allow people to go beneath their kind of thought-created identity and find something more fundamental and more essential. So as I hear coming out, uh, it's not so much whether your thoughts are good or bad, but there are different levels of thought. There are thoughts that are distracting, but there are thoughts that are needed to make change. There are thoughts that are needed to reach ourselves. Miranda, do you want to give some thoughts on that? Yeah, I was thinking about this because in the question that says, are humans too, modern humans too lost in the destruction of everyday thoughts? And I started thinking, well, what is an everyday thought? Is it everyday because it repeats? Is it everyday because it's about something unimportant? You know, how do we rank thought? Should we rank thought? And how is it useful to us? Um, I, think, I think we have to. You know, some thought thinking is like as if thinking can be a great tool, but it can also be, a, you know, an enemy. Not an enemy. That's too but strong. I mean, but is it can be problematic. Is oh, is it? Are we being distracted from everyday thought, or are we are we just being distracted in general? Well, everyday thought, I guess, is not necessary. I mean, if you need to buy the milk, you have is to think, how do you get to the store to buy the milk? Well, that, that's good. <laughs> I, I once so um, I, went, I used to go and see a spiritual teacher and. Um, in Manchester for many, many, many years. He was a very wise, kind of enlightened guy. And somebody, somebody said to me once, do you, do, you, do you think? Is your mind sort of busy? <laughs> and he said, yeah, I have some thoughts, but most of the time my mind is kind of empty. It's just full of experience. So somebody said, what, what, what are your thoughts? And he, he said, I have about five or six thoughts a day. Huh? Okay, so. that's a nice one. That's yeah. a good thing to aim <laughs> okay. for. I, yeah. So um, I think we'll go uh, to our last theme um, of the day. That will thought always be the defining quality of being human? I mean, we've just been speaking about well, people leaving their own mind and being with the screen and so. And at least I spend a lot of time with animals. And the wonderful thing with animals is they don't do that. They are in themselves, at least to my knowledge. We can't fully know, but uh, I have never seen an animal that distracted that it didn't deal with reality. Are we a misfit somehow that we shouldn't even be because we lost that, that we got too distracted, uh, we got too many uh, brain waves somehow that we, that we get uh, addicted to being outside ourselves. It's somehow, I mean, if God or Big Bang or whatever created us that way, one should think it was for something good, but it seems to take us in all the wrong directions to finishing off this planet somehow uh, and ourselves. Anyway, I think, uh, Andy, um, will you start off on that? Is it the essence of being human that we yeah, think? Yeah, I'd, I'd say I want to be um, 
I say I want to be nice to thought on, on, on this level in that um, I suppose it's so tempting because because um, with Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, you get this this idea that thought is what makes us superior. We're rational, unlike the animals, um, and and that's what kind of elevates us. That's our primary function in the world. That's what makes us good and virtuous. And I suppose it's it, it's tempting to sort of flip that to say thought is actually what's made us fallen and the animals are better than us and um you know thought is this is this great curse uh you know i i think it's it's much more somewhere in the middle um i, I don't think it 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 drives our um lives as much as uh, the greeks thought it did i think we're much more ruled by our central nervous system or our stomach or the temperature in the room or our society or whatever um i don't so know you'll still be human even if you don't con contemplate the world <laughs> um well, well there's this this um th this this wonderful story in thinking fast and slow uh where he talks about parole board judges who make decisions about whether to release people from prison uh and they are more likely to say um no the further they are from their last meal I think that's <laughs> interesting. We are going to jump on this and we don't have time, but that's sure. an interesting thought. So, Steve, um, what do you think about will thought always be what defines us as human beings? I hope not. I hope not. I hope uh, eventually we'll move into a, a space where we transcend thoughts. Not transcend it, but when we use it as a tool, like I said before, when we transcend that kind of associational chatter which dominates our lives. And that associational chatter is the source of a lot of discord in society, a lot of resentments, a lot of aggression. Depression as well is caused by this kind of thought chatter that moves, moves from our minds. So I think if we could get into that space where we don't think, when if we have a, an empty space of time where we don't need to focus, don't need to be practical, we can get into a space where we don't have to think, where we can just be. I think human beings are probably the most misnamed species on the planet because we don't spend much time being. Yeah, but, but um, is that a problem like just of modern cultures or so you, you think that inherently human beings would be able to just be like any other animals so it's it's a cultural issue more than it's a no i think know, it's both i think it's psychological i think this kind of thought the stream of thought that runs through our minds is a kind of a bit of an aberration really it doesn't really serve much function and it causes a lot of um, difficulty in our lives so i think at some point you know because and, and because it does cause a lot of social problems as well I think a lot of wars in the world are related to past resentments and grudges. A lot of arguments are based on resentments and grudges. A lot of fear of the future is based on thinking. So if we could let go of that and just learn to be, let's just learn to live in the present moment, then life would become much richer and much more harmonious. Right. So, and what do you make of this? Is uh, thought the defining quality of being human, Miranda? In terms of what's been mentioned already, I feel like I sit somewhere in between with an appreciation of thoughtlessness and appreciation of thought. Um, I struggle with the concept that human beings are defined by thought because I wonder where the line is, where thought starts. And I wonder for someone who's born with something that means they can't form a thought as we understand it, you know, they're not, not human. And we say that animals don't have thoughts, but I don't know. I mean, I'm not a scientist, um, but I think there are definitely kind of, it's blurry, this kind of thing. Yeah. And 
So I don't know exactly how, what I would say is the defining quality of being human, but I do think what we need to struggle with as human beings is to find the balance between thought and thoughtlessness. And when I say thoughtlessness, I don't mean that in a negative way. I mean thought-free states. Yeah. Mm. That's, that's yeah, where yeah. we... There's kind of health potentially in both of them. I think also we need to differentiate between the thoughts that stay with you, like how you deal with your surroundings and whether it's cold or warm and you need to go somewhere. So, Because also animals do think about that. If a cat chases a mouse and he sits waiting for it to come out of its hole, there's, there's thoughts in that. Um, the, there's a lot of thought going on within animal behavior, but it's not this external contemplation of the world, as I understand it at least. And I think that's also linked to the distraction, you know, you, you go out. So is it this, this chatter, this distractive thought, is that part of an, an essence of being human or is it something we can get rid of totally? I'm going to stand with Steve on this one. I think it's a layer. It's a on layer. Top of us. And you were on that, Stephen. And, and it, is, is this kind of the layer of thinking that's like chatter and distraction, is it part of our definition of us as human beings, or can we actually get rid of it? I haven't been able to get rid of it. Okay. But, but, <laughs> Maybe but, you're not. But a human. better man could. <laughs> okay. A better, a better Andy could. I think on this, if we all became better, we would get rid of our distractive uh, thoughts. So and let's thank this excellent panel on seduction of thoughts. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to subscribe on your platform of choice and visit iai.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos, articles and more from the world's leading thinkers.